It's a big world, and survival depends on the quality of your decisions. You need a diverse viewpoint to see all the opportunities around you. Now is the time, and this is the place. This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Tim Termunde, the president and CEO of Eagle Plains Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as EPL, and in the U.S. on the OTC as EGPLF. The company conducts research, acquires, and explores mineral projects throughout Western Canada. It favors the prospect generator business model. Eagle Plains is committed to steadily enhancing shareholder value by advancing the diverse portfolio of projects toward discovery through collaborative partnerships and development of a highly experienced technical team. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Good to talk to you again. This is the first time that we've discussed Eagle Plains resources in front of our audience. Tell us about your company. It's actually a long story, Ellis. It goes back quite a ways. We listed originally in 1995, so we've been around as a public company for about 25 years. It was founded by my father and I, and actually listed on the Alberta Stock Exchange, which doesn't exist anymore. We've graduated over the years, moved along over the years, and we now trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange, the Venture Exchange symbol EPL. We are uh, essentially a project generator type of company. We are the modern equivalent of the prospector. We go out to quite often remote areas. Often we are the first people to work on a property, the grassroots exploration from the ground up, salt sampling and moving onward. We also at times pick up projects, fairly low prices. We aim to anyway that have work in the past, historic work in the past. We look for projects with data, with a lot of the data if we can find them and sort of crunch the data into modern geological technique, GIS programs, also different economic parameters that a project that might have not have been profitable 30, 40 years ago takes on a whole new life right now under current context of markets and commodities whatnot. So chances are you're not going to pick up anything no matter how good it looks or no matter how interesting it might be unless you've done the research, the homework, the science, and determined whether or not it's economic. Yeah, absolutely. If we can determine that or determine that it could be economic in the future or could be economic if you add more drilling, we think we can expand the resources. We think we can sort of change the math of what people thought they had in the past and let it go or sold it for next to nothing. But again, we're a company of geologists. Three of the five of our directors are geologists. I've been with the company right from the start. I'm a geologist myself. So we've got the horsepower intellectually to assess projects ourselves. We've also, over the years, been able to rely sort of on in-house expertise and in-house talent. Aside from our board of directors, we own a contracting company called TerraLogic Exploration. And TerraLogic is a company of nothing but geologists and geological technicians. So we've got an in-house 
group that does our own work for ourselves. And we're able to save a lot of money by not having to sort of hire independent consultants, third-party consultants. It also gives us technical expertise that stays with us. Every geologist will tell you that every project they see makes them a better geologist. And we're big believers in investing in our people. And we've got people with us that have been with us for 15 to 20 years that have learned a lot over the years that are now helping us move forward as we move along. Are you staking and prospecting yourselves? Just about every day. So you're really not looking at distressed properties or projects around the world. You are doing your own work in the ground and finding things that are easy to bring forth into exploration and development. Yeah, I wouldn't say that we're not looking for developed assets, too. We're also, you know, we've got an eye out for those. But we do have a fairly restricted geographic area that we want to be working in. We want to be working in Western Canada. We want to be in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, or Yukon. We don't really want to look in Alaska or Idaho or Montana. I feel this business is risky enough without adding a currency penalty, basically, of 30% for a Canadian dollar. So this business is risk and reward. We feel by spending Canadian dollars in Canada, we get a big bang for the buck. And also, a lot of people don't really consider that gold right now is at all-time highs in Canadian dollars. 1640 gold is about $2,300 gold in Canadian dollars. And Canadian operations have the best chance ever of being profitable right now. You've had a lot of success over these years with projects that you've generated into other companies? Well, part of our model is, again, we have a big basket of projects. We try to get diverse commodities, whether it's precious metals, base metals, industrial metals, uranium. We've had exposure to most commodities that exist in Western Canada anyway. And we find that over the years, if we get a project that sort of rises above all the rest, Again, we're usually we're talking about grassroots. We're talking about projects that people don't know a lot about and we don't know a lot about. But as we spend money and develop these things, we find that one rises above the rest. And we found over the years that the best way to appreciate the value of those is to spin them out into a separate company. We've done that three or four times now over the years. Our most successful spin out was Copper Canyon Resources. We originally picked up the Copper Canyon project, yeah, I think 2001 or 2002, for about $7,000 is what our cost base for that project was. We soon after optioned that project to another company, again, part of the prospect generator model, bring in partners. We optioned that to Nova Gold. Nova Gold, a few years later, took out Copper Canyon Resources for about $65 million, which was dividended to our shareholders, essentially. We spun out Copper Canyon on a one-to-one basis, and our shareholders saw great returns from that. We've done that over the years a few times. Our most recent spin-out was Tyga Gold Corp, and you and I have talked about that in the past. Tyga is working right now in Saskatchewan and we've got a partner with SSR Mining that is just wrapping up a drill program right now in Saskatchewan. And they're basically taking the risk for us. They're spending a lot of money on our projects and our shareholders are basically along for a free ride while we look for other projects and work on other projects. So it's interesting too that if you add up the value of all our spin-out companies over the years and a couple of those have in turn spun out within themselves, our true accrued value of Eagle Plains shares, if you'd have held on to the spin-out shares, is over a dollar a share right now. So even though Eagle Plains trades at roughly nine to ten cents. Our shareholders, long-term shareholders, are seeing a much bigger return than that in their spin-out shares. Are you metal agnostic right now, or are you favoring gold? What are your thoughts in this current climate? Favoring gold, we've always had probably gold as half of our projects are essentially gold targeted. Quite often, you get byproducts from these gold projects. We've also got solid base projects that are base metal or silver lead zinc projects. We're based in Cranbrook, British Columbia, which is in the southeast corner of British Columbia. And from my office window, I can see the Sullivan Hill, which was host to the Sullivan deposit, which is one of the biggest lead zinc deposits in the world. It's a $40 billion beast. 
that that's now mined out. It, was, it ran for about 100 years and created tremendous economic wealth across Canada. That's been one of our sort of base targets for years. And we've got a number of projects in the East Kootenai areas that target Sullivan-type exploration, FedEx-type deposits. So we actually have one that I'm really excited about called the Vulcan Project that we will be drilling this year, actually probably in the next two months, if we're able to. With this COVID-19 issue right now, we're certainly taking that very seriously and taking the safety of our employees and contractors very seriously. And if we can drill it safely and within the regulations, we plan on drilling it this year. You know, I've been to a few locations around the world which are fairly remote with regard to just seeing anybody around it. It's difficult for me to imagine or picture a virus getting out to a drilling location, but it's possible, I guess. Yeah, and the drilling area we're doing right now, part of the big problem is camp, right? If you've got a camp, you have to bring workers in and out of these camps, and it's more introducing the virus to a camp environment from outside of that environment. The Vulcan project that we plan on drilling is actually a little different in that it wouldn't require a camp. It's right along the road, and it's not that far from Kimberley, B.C., so we can safely get people back and forth to the drill. It's just a question of if the COVID crisis becomes more acute and the government brings in tighter and tighter regulations, it just might not be practical to drill it this year or, or during this period anyway, but we certainly plan to. We're planning it right now. We've got permits in place and we have money in place and we plan on doing it. So fingers crossed on a number of levels. We've seen some love for gold before this crisis and I imagine that's going to continue when it's over, if not during. Oh, absolutely. And if gold is truly the barometer of fear, and, and many people believe it is, and I believe it is, I think as this crisis unfolds, I think that there will be people moving more and more to gold. And there's a silver lining in this dark cloud. It's that, you know, for companies like us that do have a pretty solid stable of gold projects, and we may find it easier to attract partners and to attract funding. How are you financed for any potential new deals coming down the road and also developing these projects? Well, we're very well financed right now. We've got about five and a half million dollars in cash and short-term securities probably 60 to 70% of that is cash. We haven't got any debt. We own our own offices and a couple of other real estate assets. And again, through TerraLogic, through our ownership of TerraLogic, TerraLogic has been profitable over the last 10 years. And TerraLogic basically does provide access to us to revenue without having to finance. We did a small financing a couple of years ago just to facilitate our last spin out of Taiga. But before that, we hadn't done a financing for nine years. So we're pretty well self-sufficient as a company. And I think it's also important to to mention that even though we've been around for 25 years, we've never rolled back the stock. We've got 95 million shares outstanding, and that's without a rollback. And on top, you know, with the 95 million shares out, we've spun out a whole bunch of other companies as basically as dividends to our shareholders. So we're almost, you know, you could consider us as a dividend-paying exploration company. What's the summer look like for you in 2020, all things considered, and we can proceed? Well, we actually have a very busy summer planned. I mentioned earlier that the Vulcan project to, to drill, we, we have that on the books right now. We also plan on drilling the Olson project. Project, which is a gold project in Saskatchewan uh, under option to SKRR resources. So we're in the throes of planning and permitting for that. We've also got a number of smaller projects that are both partner funded and self-funded. We've got the Donna property in south central British Columbia that's under option to Pinnacle North. They plan on a program this year. Again, the regulations become more stringent and it's impossible to do these programs. Then all bets are off. But for now, we are moving ahead with these programs. 
with the planning. One of the reasons we're in the business of investing in junior mining companies is the potential, doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen, the potential for a five or 10 bagger. You've had them, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Over the years, we try to offer kind of a mutual fund approach to exploration and all our diversification and the way we model the company. But we also at times uh, take a swing for the fences ourselves through a drill program we fund ourselves or through a deal that really catches fire. But over the years, we have managed to have 10 baggers like four times um, in the last 12 or 14 years. So though it's slow and steady most of the time for us, we do have some pretty spectacular runs at times. And again, it's very exciting when that happens. We're very happy to be able to reward shareholders. Again, our management are the biggest shareholders of the company. Myself and my father are the two largest shareholders. And so when we see success, when shareholders see success, we see success. We're all in this together. Myself and my father have never missed the financing. We've written checks all along the years to, to support the company to buy more shares. So we've certainly got the skin in the game with our shareholders as well. Tim, I always enjoy speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program and good luck to you. Yeah, likewise, Alice. Stay safe. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Tim Termonday, the president and CEO of Eagle Plains Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as EPL and in the U.S. on the OTC as EGPLF. To learn more about Eagle Plains, go to the company's website, eagleplains.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Aubin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks a lot, Alice. What do you think about gold right now? We're in a bull market. Gold is really having a good move. It's reacting to things really well. It's not a V-shape, you know, or an upside-down V-shape, whatever you want to call it. It's on a good trajectory. It goes up, pulls back, goes up, pulls back. It's doing all the right things, and it's actually creating a pulse in the market we haven't seen for a few months despite the pandemic. I've been sort of sitting back waiting to find out if the taps are going to get turned on at any time soon in terms of funding. And that's all kind of in the pipeline. A lot of the flow-through funds up here are looking to cash up over the next couple of months. So that's really good to know and it's good to hear. I'm curious when there's a cutback in production, when we don't know when that's going to turn around and there is a squeeze on bullion in many instances, you just can't get it because people are buying it and that's driving the spot price up, etc. How do the juniors fare in that space? The junior space, it's divided between developers and explorationists. Mm-hmm. And developers, they'll obviously react to a higher price of gold before what I call the real juniors, the exploration companies. And that is a supply problem right now. Some of the mines have closed. A lot of them are in curtailment because they're trying to figure out how to adjust their shift work to the virus because they would be two weeks on, two weeks off. And if they're going to leave the community they're in and go back home, when they come back, they tend to have to be isolated again for two weeks. And especially if you're up north in First Nations communities, that sort of thing, it's making it difficult. I've watched the guys in the Golden Triangle and how they're handling it. And Red Chris is 
a big copper gold mine up there. They're working very closely with the Taltan, the First Nations group, their territory, and they've had to adjust their shift work. They're not letting anybody out of their territory. If they live there, they got to stay there and take their two weeks off and then go back to work for two weeks. And as far as the juniors, as the junior juniors go, like the explorationists, we're just buying our time until the funding starts to roll and we can go back and put a plan together to work. And my guys right now are doing just that. We're taking all the data we've done over two years, 20,000 meters of drilling, going through it meter by meter, and we're coming up with a plan. And when we're ready and we're able to, we'll start looking to head back up north probably by July. It's very, very, very difficult to buy physical gold right now. There's just becoming a depletion, and you got probably more and more countries. The sovereigns are lapping up, buying what they can. Large institutions are doing the same. Till the taps come back on, that may make an adjustment in the gold price because all of a sudden there is more gold hitting the market. I don't know enough to say that there could be some forward selling going on for when they do turn the taps back on and that's already got a price attached to it. That's the part of this market you never truly hear about. What's the speculation play then with these junior companies? Let's say a company like Abin, why should you invest at this time? Just get yourself a position and hold on? Yeah, I mean, if they're five cents or 10 cents and lower, there's going to be some really good bargains because if this gold market keeps up, and even if it continues to go higher, but gets up there and stabilizes, and then the rest of the world stabilizes afterwards, shortly after, that's going to be where you want to be because the industrial metals, let's take copper, for example, it responds to a global economy. And if they're the global economy, it's not going to snap right back. It's going to come back in stages and it's going to take time. That's my own personal view, but I think that's the one. And, and you kind of see copper and maybe zinc and nickel and that. They're not going to go up straight line. Like you can see what's happening with gold. I mean, it does have pullbacks and everything looks great. But the industrial metals, it'll be a little different because that's more reliant upon the economics of the world. So I guess it's true contrary to what I've been saying for months, maybe years. Gold does need a fear story and we do have it. Yep. It just makes it that much better for gold. I've always said you know, ever since Trump got in, it's good for gold. Because <laughs> sure enough, something's going to go haywire. Are you suggesting he's just a powder keg? That uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, he is. He's an interesting guy. But he is, you know, he's got his hands on something that is just too foreign to him. It's just too foreign. It really sees the real person come out. It's going to aggravate the situation. The recovery is not going to be that easy. And I think remains to be seen. But we're so close to a major financial crisis right now. And I understand why he wants to open up again, but you, you got to balance that between the economy and, and lives. You know, I've known you for a while, a few years now, probably five or six years, and I've never known you really to pick a side politically, that you're not one of those kind of people. So for you to say something like this, it just sort of holds a lot of weight. Well, I'm not an overly political person, but I'm just on the outside looking in because I live in Canada, generally conservative. But this is a little different. I never thought of Trump as being a Republican. He was something else. What's happening in the Golden Triangle now with regard to exploration and development? What's going on at Forest Kerr? There's really nothing other than our guys are doing a lot of analysis work based on all the work we've done the last few years. They're at their homes doing it. We're basically proving up new targets, new places to drill on the Forest Kerr property where we've been drilling because there's so much mineralization. You've got to get our heads around it. Last year, as we moved south, we got away from the high-grade zone into more low-grade polymer 
Vitalik, what changed? We think we've found a new fault system that could be something that's quite significant to some of the holes we drilled last year that did have a lot of mineralization in them. So we're working on that. Nobody's really working up there other than the producers and developers like Skeena and that. I don't know if they're drilling or not. I haven't heard. But by and large, if any of the explorers do get back up there this year, they probably won't be drilling till July. And so it's just a time between now and then is when we normally be on the road marketing, getting the story out there. But we can do that audio and visual online, however you want to do it, and that'll replace the travel anyway. No, there's not a whole lot of work going on up there. As a matter of fact, I get the news bulletins from the Taltan nation itself every week. They're very nervous. So far, there's been no virus up there. It is to the south in Terrace, and it is to the north at Whitehorse and Yukon, and they're very nervous about it hitting their community because it could spread so quickly. It's a small population and isolated. So I don't even know how at this point we'd arrange to go up to do some work because 40% of the contract workers we have would be Taltan, part of the First Nations group up there. They're very nervous about that. So we've got to plan around it. We may not do the necessary drilling. The drilling contractors that are up there are good, but we may just do more field work before we go in and drill and, and then drill towards the end of the summer. We'll see. And then if we give enough time, things could settle right down. But there is some fear on their part. They're adjusting the Red Chris scheduling all the time. And Bruce Jack is going through the same stuff, I think, as far as scheduling their crews, because a lot of the people that work at the mines are Taltan. Taltan is one of the few First Nations group that really has no unemployment. So this is a problem all the way around for a variety of reasons. I'm wondering, with the absence of news flow, all you can do, I guess, is brand the company and expose yourself to potential new shareholders that are in for the long run and willing to sit it out, knowing that gold is really mm-hmm. a good place to be. Well, worst case scenario is we do have another project that's in Saskatchewan. It's been on hold for a while. We can re-enter, rethink that one and go in there. It's quite isolated. We have been maintaining consultations with the First Nations group over there. They've softened their stance dramatically from a couple of years ago when we were ready to start drilling and they came in and asked us to leave, which is unusual, to say the least, in Saskatchewan, because it's one of the best jurisdictions to work in. But it was because there was an election going on for a new band council, and they said they didn't know we were there, but we had consulted with the previous council. They had discussed it, they said, with the whole community, and we got our permit, and away we went, and that didn't last long. So that was almost three years ago. We still have the property. The government has just said, in lieu of assessment work, you can just hang on to it until you come to terms. You know, we can always do that because they do want us back now. It would seem that this is the type of environment, and I know it is in several instances with some of the royalty companies, for instance, that M&A's acquisitions might be something to look at when everything's stressed at this time. Have you thought about that? When companies are stressed, they do look at that in terms of, you know, maybe we can merge with these guys over here because we have similar assets, et cetera, et cetera. You do start seeing that. Oddly enough, though, you see the big M&As always at the top of the cycle. So the, the big guys get it wrong. They should be looking at things now. Like at the Roundup in Vancouver, not too long ago, I am involved in a copper company as an independent director, and there was a lot of majors in town, and they were looking for good assets with good exploration upside, and that's kind of gone silent. 
since the roundup back in January. There was no shortage of guys looking, these big guys, and I'm talking like Tech and Rio and, well, not BHP, but their spinoff, South 32. You know, lots of companies, they're definitely wanting to know about what was going on in the copper world. Gold was sort of partway through its role that started last May. The barracks of the world and other gold producers, they're all very keen on hearing anybody's story. Jim, if you have anything to say to shareholders or potential shareholders listening to the program right now, what would that be? I would say hang in there. The gold market's primed. It really is. This is a time when you start picking the horses. The financing side of things will follow in short order. The one hitch that can happen is how quickly will this virus subside from the hinterlands, right, where most of the mines are. You know, it does cause an effect on the work that is being proposed, whether it's going to be a scaled-down version of what you want to do, or maybe it will be, okay, fine, just go ahead and do it, but stay to yourself. Most of us are in camps anyways, so that can be done from an exploration point of view. That's all going to get ironed out. I would say we're coming into a pretty big cycle in terms of gold and other types of minerals and metals as well, like uranium, for example. Got a pretty good pulse on it right now. You know, and then eventually as things recover, the world economy will come back and the base metals will start doing their thing too. Well Jim, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program and stay safe. Hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you very much. You stay safe too. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources. Trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources. Trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Nice to speak with you today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been about a month since we've chatted, and I think a lot's happened in that month. And it looks like because of some of the pullback from the majors, we're seeing an uplift in prices in uranium. Now, let's talk about that in a macro perspective, and let's talk to investors that are in uranium and that are maybe sitting on the sidelines right now waiting for direction as far as what to do. Sure. So, yeah, a lot has changed, obviously, in the last month since we last spoke. The price of the commodity in the spot market has made a pretty significant move over 20% higher from $24.50. It's just touched $30 a pound, which has been a pretty notable resistance level for the last several years. It's 
It's now trading at six-year highs and looks like the momentum will be sustained. There's a number of reasons for this. We've talked at length in the past about the ultimate impending bull market, given the long drawn-out bear market we've seen with this specific metal and commodity. I think this is the final catalyst that we need to see that happen over the coming years. We've now seen major supply disruptions globally with uranium, starting with Cigar Lake shutting down a few weeks back. Initially, they had guided a four-week suspension, which they've just now announced that it's going to be shut down for an indeterminate period of time in response to the pandemic. What's interesting about this is Cigar Lake is the largest, richest, currently operating underground uranium mine. It's in the Athabasca Basin, owned and operated by Cameco and a couple other joint venture partners. It's really the last major mine that Cameco has that was still operating before the pandemic, and it accounts for about 13% of global primary mine supply. It produces about 1.3 million pounds of uranium each month. So for each month that this mine shut down, Cameco is going to have to source 1.3 million pounds of material from somewhere else. And as we've spoken about in the past, we know Cameco has shut down their other large Athabasca Basin mine, MacArthur River, that remains shut down until we see higher prices. And other production curtailment from the companies resulted in Cameco having to buy the material that they're not producing in the spot market. Well, now we have basically the other half of their production profile that's gone offline. And the longer it remains offline, the more material they're going to have to buy in the spot market. We know from earlier this year, before the pandemic, before the Cigar Lake shutdown, that they were planning to buy or acquire 20 to 22 million pounds. They stated the majority of that would have to be bought in the spot market to meet their contract delivery. So that amount's just increasing each week that goes by. So not only only do you have major supply coming offline, but you have the added demand now coming into the spot market. So that's definitely playing a part in what we're seeing in the commodity price rise over the last several weeks. But you've had a couple of other notable developments in supply disruptions. Uh, Namibia, which accounts for about 10% of global production, they've just announced that they've ceased operations, suspended production, and are winding down production at several of their uranium mines. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see how long that potentially last. And then just last week, we saw the largest producer of uranium globally in Kazatomprom, which is Kazakhstan state-run uranium mining company. They account for over 40% of global primary mine supply. They've announced a 10.4 million pound production cut over the next three months. And if we see any additional cuts or extended cuts from them, again, that just adds to that number that will exacerbate what we're seeing and likely drive a higher uranium price. So major production cuts, just to give some numbers, provide some additional numbers. And as we've talked about, we have seen major supply side response play out over the last few years, really since 2016, when we started to see supply and production come offline. Again, like I said, MacArthur River, Kazatomprom had announced production cuts, a few other mines globally that have simply run out of reserves and come to the end of their mine lives. So up until February of this year um, and these recent supply cuts, we saw about over 30% of global primary mine supply come offline. And like I said, pretty significant supply side response 
really to the low price environment that we've seen for uranium. But now you add to that these recent cuts, which account for about, on an annualized basis, about 30% to primary mine supply. You now have significant amount of uranium production, primary mine supply that's offline right now. And a big part of this is the fact that we do see a highly concentrated production profile. There's 10 producers globally that account for 80% of production. So you only have a handful of mines and jurisdictions that produce the bulk of the world's uranium. So the risk to the supply side, and given what we've seen in this black swan event, there was always a much higher risk that there would be a supply shock. And we're now seeing that play out. And now on the demand side, and because I think this is important as well, the demand side is relatively inelastic. I think that's another reason we're seeing the price move here is that uranium used in nuclear reactors, nuclear reactors are not easy to turn on and off. They're big infrastructure projects. You know, I think we'll see the continued rollout and build of nuclear reactors globally, especially in places like China and India and other parts of the developing world, if we see you know infrastructure spends increase as a result of what we're seeing globally, you have 442 operable reactors globally, 54 that are under construction, and about another 440 that are ordered, planned, and proposed. So the demand side's continuing to grow. I think we'll see that continue over the next several years. And just to put some numbers on it, we had 2020 expected demand of about 183 million pounds. Again, I think that'll be relatively inelastic. And then prior to the pandemic, we had an expected primary mine supply in 2020 of about 142 million pounds. Well, that number's come down significantly. And like I said earlier, you're going to see producers like Cameco have to acquire material, buy material in the spot market or source it from some other secondary supply to meet their contract deliveries, right? So uh, it's not just supply coming offline, it's new demand that'll be coming in to the spot market potentially. So all of these factors, a confluence of factors that are creating this environment to drive a higher uranium price that we've been talking about for months and several years now, we're finally starting to see that materialize. And what will be interesting over the coming months and over the next year is how we see utility companies respond to this, right? We do know that there are a significant number of long-term contracts that uranium's delivered to them in, and a lot of these long-term contracts, about 50% of them expire over the next five to six years. If you back out the two years typically required for enrichment and fuel fabrication, you can see that even in the next several years, there's some major contracts, utility contracts expiring, and that these purchasing managers, fuel buyers are going to have to come back to the market. Now that they're seeing the market tighten up significantly, they're seeing the price move, I think they're going to be forced to come back to the market sooner than later. So again, I just a confluence of factors right now that's moving the price higher and Sky Harbor being one of the few remaining active uranium exploration and early stage development companies out there stands to benefit along with our peers and and other uranium mining companies. There's not many ways to play or get investment exposure to this commodity. There aren't a bunch of ETFs, can't really buy physical uranium. There's, again, very few mechanisms to get exposure to this metal. And buying the few mining companies that are left is really one of the only ways to do that. And there's a combined market capitalization of less than $8 billion. We have seen the share prices moving recently, but even still with the rebound, we're still well below about 8 or $9 billion in combined market capitalization with the publicly traded uranium companies out there. So I think still a long way to move with a, a rising uranium price. Well, I think you've answered almost every one of my questions before I can even ask them. Thank you for that. But I would like to comment on the fact that 
your share price. Even in the last week, you have followed the market. You're up 25% in one week alone, and you're at 12 cents US as of this broadcast. This trend that you've been speaking about, this black swan event that has really forced the shutdown of production almost across the board for three months, that's not something that can be squashed or turned around, I would say, over the next six months to potentially a year. This doesn't just stop, does it? No, and we're keeping a close eye out as our investors, I'm sure, for the next few months, what we see in terms of restarts. It's not easy just simply restarting a big mine technical operation. There's a lot that goes into the restarts, but time will tell. We'll see what the next few months brings. I think one of the key things to note is if you just look at Cameco in particular with the shutdown at Cigar Lake, we know that they shut down MacArthur River a few years back based off of economic reasons. It was more profitable and has been more profitable for them to buy material in the spot market or source it from other supplies, secondary supplies, and resell into their higher price contracts than it was to produce from the mine. And keep in mind, this is one of the lower cost producing mines globally. It's the highest grade uranium mine in the world. So we're not talking about a marginal higher cost producer. We're talking about a lower cost producer. And it just made more sense for them to leave the pounds in the ground and ultimately mine it when the uranium price is higher. And I think we need to see over $40 uranium before MacArthur Rivers restarted. It'd be interesting to see what they do with Cigar Lake. Uh, Yes, the mine was shut down for health concerns revolving around the pandemic, but I could see the restart of the mine, the reasons and factors going into the restart revolving more around commercial and economic reasons. And so if that's the case, you could see that mine shut down for an extended period of time. And like I said, it's a big part of the global production profile. So it's going to put upward pressure on uranium prices. And there are other operating mines globally in parts of Africa and Australia, Olympic Dam being a big one that account for a significant amount of remaining global uranium production. And if there's any supply disruptions at those mines, that'll obviously have a positive impact on the spot price. And just getting back to The uranium companies and share price over the last few weeks, yes, they've rebounded. We're now trading back up at about 15, 16 cents Canadian. The last year and a half, though, has been a tough year collectively for uranium companies following the Section 232 investigation, which we've talked about previously, and the lack of trade action we saw. It really forced pretty precipitous sell-off thereafter across the board. A lot of event-driven money that had invested in these companies going into that decision last summer exit. We saw a pullback in the valuation in the equity and the share prices. And so it's good to see a bit of a rebound here. And I think what's important, though, is, you know, looking out six to 12 months where do we expect things to be? It's tough to say. There's a lot of moving parts right now with everything that's going on globally. But like I said, when you have such a concentrated supply profile as you do with uranium and you have a few operating mines that are affected by it, it certainly can make a big dent on the primary mine supply globally. And it's going to get, obviously, the fuel buyers, nuclear utilities are now going to be looking at their contracts and wanting to make sure that they've shored up enough supply if, if they haven't. And if they haven't, they're going to have to be buying aggressively, likely in the spot market and or have to settle for higher prices in new contracts. That's been a big issue recently with utility fuel buyers and the mining companies. 
companies is renegotiating contracts when there's been a low spot price. There's been an impasse to get these contracts signed. Well, with the rising spot price and again, these contracts expiring, fuel buyers for utility companies have no choice. They're going to have to come back. And especially if you see any extended production curtailment from these mines that have shut down and the mines that have been shut down for the last several years, you're going to get a situation much like we saw in 2006-2007 where you had a lot of aggressive buying coming into the market. And we've spoken about this and I think a number of your listeners will know that the fuel buyers for this metal, for this commodity being used in nuclear fuel for nuclear power generation, the buyers are somewhat price insensitive. They are less concerned about paying a higher price. They want to just make sure that they have enough secure long-term supply of it. The reactor doesn't run dry. And the reason for that is the overall cost of operating a nuclear reactor, the fuel costs are relatively low, less than 5%. And so it doesn't make a huge difference to their bottom line. Obviously, they're trying to get best price, but it doesn't make a huge difference to their bottom line. They'll pay up to lock up long-term secure supply. So we see that compound in rising markets like we saw in 2006, 2007, when the price of the commodity went from $15 a pound all the way up to $140 a pound in the spot market. In 2007, there was just a herd mentality, really, and we saw the prices bid up over a relatively short period of time. So, you know, we'll see what happens in this next bull market. I've said before, we saw a bottom put it in 2016, and we've seen a rebalancing of the market. There's now a major supply deficit looming with primary mine supply dropping off quite significantly here in growing demand, especially in places like China and India, as I mentioned, and other parts of the developing world. We do have the advent of SMR, small modular reactors, that could increase demand in the Western world. We see some of these SMR prototypes and models rolled out over the coming years. So I think the future is bright. As I mentioned, again, one of the few active uranium companies out there, we do offer investors exposure. And as a junior, leveraged exposure more to a rising uranium price. And we've completed several exploration and drill programs, us and our partner companies, on our various projects in the Athabasca Basin recently, including our drill program at our flagship MORE project. We're just waiting for assays, very happy with that program, with what we are seeing. Our other partners, including Arano, which is France's largest uranium mining company, is completing some geophysical programs at our Preston project, and they're following that up later this year with a drill program. And then last but not at least as in court, another partner company of ours is waiting drill results from a winter drill program at uh, our East Preston project. So lots of company-specific catalysts and news flow over the coming months here. We get results. We are looking already looking forward to additional programs, drill programs and exploration programs, both funded by us and our partner companies for the remainder of the year. We'll have details on those programs forthcoming, and we're looking forward to getting back to work on the heels of news from the winter and call it late spring programs that have been completed. So yeah, look, lots to look forward to from the company and from a macro high level standpoint. I think we could see this year the price of uranium have a major move or we're already seeing that start to play out. And I think we see that momentum sustained and looks like the trend has officially reversed for the commodity price. So the next few months will be important. You know, we'll see what happens. Again, there's a lot of moving parts, but it's good to see the last few weeks with the commodity price moving in the right direction. That's definitely some positive news, especially for the speculative investor and the long-term investor in this space. 
Very good. Very good. Jordan, it's always a pleasure to hear from you, and thank you very much for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. For the Ellis Martin Report and Sky Harbor Resources, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Tim Tremonday is the CEO and President of Tega Gold Corp, trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Tega Gold Corp. is a mineral exploration company focusing on gold in eastern Saskatchewan, Canada. The company's flagship project is the Fisher property, located adjacent to SSR Mining CB Gold Operation property and approximately 1.5 kilometers from the Santoy Mine itself. The Fisher property is bisected by the Santoy Shear Zone along its entire length, approximately 18 kilometers, and the nearby Santoy Mine is currently producing high-grade gold from this structure. The Fisher property is under option to SSR Mining, where they are undertaking significant exploration, including drilling, with the intent of locating gold deposits for development into potential reserves. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Ellis. Good to talk to you again. You've been staking in Saskatchewan, a place I've never been to, but uh, I hope I can go someday. What's happening over there? Well, we actually really, really like Saskatchewan as a jurisdiction on a number of levels. Particularly, they they brought in an online staking system five or six, well, seven or eight years ago now. And basically, that means that rather than go out to the field and cut down trees and blaze lines and lots of money, you can actually acquire on your computer, which is much, much more cost effective and provides certainty of tenure immediately. And we've decided to make Saskatchewan for that one reason. The other reason is that Saskatchewan has incredibly high potential geology and even more incredibly very low exploration over the years. You know, there's geology in Saskatchewan that rivals very well developed mineral belts elsewhere in eastern Canada that had, you know, a fraction of a fraction of the exploration attention that these other areas have. So we sort of tweaked onto that years ago and we've been steadily increasing our presence in Saskatchewan and steadily increasing our budgets towards exploration in Saskatchewan. And in short, we really like the area. Why has it been so under explored and underdeveloped, do you think? I think there's probably a number of reasons, some of them more complex than others. There was an NDP government in Saskatchewan for years and years, for about a 50-year period, that demanded part ownership of anything that resources in the province. And so that sort of scared business away a little bit for a long period of time. And because that business was scared away, that exploration was, you know, relatively subdued relative to other areas of Canada. It just, you know, there wasn't a big strike there. There wasn't anything to draw other people in like any big discovery. I mean, yes, there's been potash there for known about for years and uranium for years, but as far as gold and base metals, there was no real Eureka event that brought in others, and I think that's the long and short of it. Is there a Eureka event in the making? What do you know about the geology over there? Well, the Eureka moment in the making has actually been about a 25-year slow-motion event, and it's (laughs) It's really the CB Santoy mine that SSR mining bought from Claude Resources in 2015, I guess. That deposit was discovered originally, actually, in the 70s or 80s, and really found to be potentially economic in the 90s. The mine was built in the mid-90s, and 
never had serious exploration to create a huge resource base around it. So it was always sort of a hand-to-mouth mine over the years. But when SSR came on, they did a lot more exploration drilling, brownfields drilling around the site, actually built resources up to the point where if you take the amount that's been mined in the past and add the current resources and reserves and potential reserves, you're talking about a multi-million ounce deposit there that was never really known in the early days. It never really got anybody's attention because there was no big numbers attached to it. They're starting to see now that it is a big gold system and it's a big gold camp and there's very few people exploring in that area with the exception of SSR and Taiga. I want to circle back to online staking because today's the first day I've ever heard about anything like that. I'm a media guy. I'm not a geologist or a prospector, although I've met many prospectors. How do you do prospecting online? Well, you don't. The online part is just for tenure acquisition. In the old days, and we did it a lot, you would fly into an area with a float plane or a helicopter, send a crew of four or eight people around to blaze lines in the bush. That's how you staked your claim. It was very expensive and it was very inefficient in that you might find out when you went to record your claim with the mining recorder that another group of four or eight people was there two days before you and you didn't see any evidence of their lines because you didn't go in the exact same areas and you might have just wasted $50,000. So now you can go on with your computer, you can pick the corners of the claim you'd like to take, there's a nominal fee for it, you might spend two or $3,000 acquiring the same tenure package that might have cost you $50,000 10 years ago. So that money, that $48,000 you saved, now goes into exploration, goes into soil sampling, stream sediment sampling, whatever. It's just money that you've saved in tenure acquisition you get to use for exploration. Will you be continuing this process over the next few months? Absolutely. We do a lot of research, especially in Saskatchewan. We've got target areas now that happen to be staked by other people that we're watching to see if these claims come open. This is exactly what happened with the Leland situation. There were some mineral occurrences at Leland that we've had our eyes on for the last two or three years, but someone else owned them. So those claims came open here recently and we were able to stake them. So we've basically added to our existing land package at Leland. And again, that was through map staking. It was very cost effective for us. I think it was $1,000 or something we paid to get these new claims, a couple thousand dollars, I think. What have you got planned for the company for the next few months during lockdown? We're business as usual with Taiga and with Eagle Plains. Our office is locked, but we've got a couple of people going to the office here and there. Most of our staff and contractors are working from home, but we're doing conference calls daily. We're in touch and we're moving ahead. We've got projects in the pipeline right now that we're currently working on planning and budgeting and permitting for. So business as usual for us. We're still developing safety policies in light of the COVID-19 situation. And again, being mindful that safety is number one for us. So if we feel that we can't carry out a project, safely, we won't do it. But so far with our planning, it looks like we'll be able to have policies in place that ensure everyone's safety. And of course, you're optimistic about the gold market. We can say that today, can't we? Absolutely. Again, I remind people that gold in Canadian dollars has never been higher. $1,700 gold in Canadian dollars is about $2,400 gold. And the last gold spike that we saw, gold, I think, reached about 1918 or something like that. But at that time, the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar were almost at par. So effectively, with 1,900 Canadian, now 2,400 Canadian, which is, I think, a game changer for projects in Canada and particularly producers in 
in Canada. What are you hearing from SSR Mining these days? We just got an update from them recently. They were well underway on a large drill program on our Fisher property. Um, the Fisher property is under option to SSR Mining. They can earn up to an 80% interest in the property. So they've been going great guns over the last few years. They've spent over $10 million on Fisher, and they had a winter drill program underway that started early January and was scheduled to be completed at the end of March. We got notice from them that they shut the program down a little early due to safety concerns related to the coronavirus COVID-19 situation. They shut the CB mine down, extended operations at CB mine for the foreseeable future. But they also let us know that the program didn't go to absolute completion, but we were happy to see that they'd finish 95% of the drilling they had planned. So we have no results yet from them, but we expect as part of the agreement, they update us every three months on the progress of the property. So we expect to get a report here in late April, which will detail exactly how many holes, how many feet, and we'll probably have results for the first few holes of that program. So we're looking forward to that. We're very excited about the Fisher Project, and I think SSR is as well. I just wanted to add the company's very healthy right now. We completed a large financing, a $1.5 million financing here in early February. We're extremely healthy. We see that a lot of companies are struggling right now, and we just want to be clear that we're not. I also want to remind people that we are also, while SSR is focused on the Fisher property, we are turning our attention and our resources to our other projects we have in that area, which are the Chico, the Leland, and the Orchid project. We're working on both of those. We have plans for summer work on Leland and on Orchid. We're moving those projects towards a drill-ready status, and depending on the market and the ability to finance without much dilution. We'll look at whether we advance those ourselves or, or seek partners for that. For those people that have a little bit more time right now to take a look at opportunities in the resource sector, why should they consider Tega as a potential investment opportunity? Well, that's a good question. I guess, number one, I think we offer very good value for the share price that we're at right now. We've managed to mitigate risk in exploration. This is a very risky business. And right now, our partner, SSR, is taking on all the risk of exploration. They've spent over $10 million on the property to date. And from what we say, they plan on uh, spending more in the future. So it's leverage. It's leverage to discovery. I think the Taiga situation is very unique in that we are situated right next door to a mine. And the people that are mining at that property are also optioning our property from us. So we've got the expertise of SSR. Their geologists are very, very smart geologists. We've met almost all of them that are involved in the Fisher exploration, and they know what they're looking for. They mine it right next door. So our geology as well, if you go on our website and look at the maps, the geology of the Fisher property is an extension of what they're mining on the CB gold operation properties. SSR has traced that shear, the Santoy shear, which they're mining at the Santoy deposit, traced that 25 kilometers right through the length of our property, which is an incredible land package to hold. So I just think there's a lot of value there. We're hopeful that SSR someday may want to take the whole package, Taiga, with the other projects and the royalties and everything else that Taiga holds. So I just think it's a good shot for investors, particularly in a what seems to me to be a developing gold market at record Canadian gold prices right now. Tim, it's always great to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you, Alice. Take care and stay safe. I've been speaking with Tim Termunday, the president and CEO of Tega Gold Corp. Trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Find the company on the web at tegagold.com. That's T-A-I-G-A gold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them.
I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Sally Huayar, political refugee and prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile, based in Washington, D.C. The East Turkestan government in exile, ETGE, is a democratically elected body representing the interests of East Turkestan and its people. The ETGE seeks to restore East Turkestan's independence as a democratic, secular, pluralistic republic that guarantees human rights and freedom for all. East Turkestan has effectively been occupied by China since December 22, 1949, and is referred to by the Chinese Communist Party as Xinjiang. Our discussion today shall include the plight of the native Muslim population, the Uyghur, and their subsequent subjugation. How has the Chinese Communist Party used these people to fill gaps in their factories across the country due to the current pandemic COVID-19 coronavirus? Prime Minister, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time at this time. If you don't mind, give us a background on the Uyghur people in East Turkestan, what's now called Jinsin. The Uyghur people are one of the Turkic ethnic groups in East Turkestan. They are the majority in East Turkestan. They have inhabited East Turkestan for over 6,000 years. Our history goes back roughly a little over 6,000 years. And for much of history until recent times, the 1884, the Manchu Qing dynasty invaded and occupied East Turkestan and renamed it to Xinjiang, meaning the new territory. However, Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples of East Turkestan declared independence twice. The first was in 1933, and it was short-lived, roughly about six months. The second time, we declared independence in 1944, and this lasted until 1949 when the Chinese communists invaded and occupied East Turkestan, leading to the current colonization and genocide that we see today. What is your goal as prime minister in exile of East Turkestan? What do you hope to see? So ultimately, our goal is to restore East Turkestan's independence as a secular, democratic pluralistic republic, which guarantees human rights and freedom for all of its people. We are trying to seek international support on our issue and ultimately regain our independence. Let's be clear, this has evolved over time, over thousands of years, into a Muslim population. Are you receiving any help from the Muslim world at all? Unfortunately, the Muslim world has not offered any help in any way. In fact, more recently, much of the Muslim world has been, especially their governments, have been supporting the Chinese government's atrocities in East Turkestan by issuing statements praising the Chinese Communist Party and its so-called counterterrorism effort and human rights development project. One of the things about East Turkestan that I know for a fact is that it is energy and mineral rich. Why would the Chinese ever give that up? Well, that's another thing, but it is indeed a rich region. It's strategically located in the heart of Central Asia. It connects China to Central Asia and the West. It's roughly about one-fifth of China's current territory, or the Chinese Empire, as we like to call it. But however, you know, the majority of the people there are ethnically Turkic people. They are culturally, linguistically, religiously, ethnically different from China. It wasn't until, as I stated, 1949 that the population of East Turkestan, the demographics began to change. Uh, in 1949, over 95% of the population of East Turkestan was Turkic compared to uh, less than about 55% today. You're not opposed to working with China, 
the Chinese government in supplying that country, the empire, and surrounding nations with energy, with minerals over time. You just want the same sort of independent autonomy, let's say, that Hong Kong has enjoyed since the British left in 1997, I believe. Am I right? Well, Hong Kong doesn't have the autonomy that China has given them is very similar to the fake autonomy that China has given East Turkestan since 1955. What we want is independence, complete political, economic, and social independence. We are not against working, developing ties, economic and political, diplomatic relations with China or any other country. In fact, we are trying to do that. That's something that we want to do. And we're more than willing to sell our oil, our natural gas and other resources to China or other countries that would like to buy it. I understand. But let me ask you this question. What is your vision of how that would happen? So one of the first things is to spread awareness about East Turkestan to the broad international community to ensure that they understand what East Turkestan is, what the overall situation is, and how East Turkestan became occupied. Another thing is to use international laws, international organizations like the UN and in Western nations to offer us diplomatic and political support to help bring this to a reality. Are you seeing any movement in that area since my last conversation with Kyle Olbert several months ago? We have had some slow progression. This earlier in March, we had a member of the United States Congress speak out on the Congress floor, delivering a speech about East Turkestan, the fact that it's occupied by China, and that the fact that the United States and the world needs to do something to resolve this issue. Really, you see it as it being up to the United States and the world body as a whole to help adjust this situation. Exactly. It's very difficult for us to, given the current colonization and genocide going on there. It's very difficult for us to do this on our own. We will need, you know, diplomatic, political, and financial support from the Western world. And they need to impose pressure on China, sanctions, tariffs, economic and political pressure to end this genocide and ultimately to respect our political rights and our desire for independence. I heard you refer in another interview to the situation in East Turkestan as being very similar to the Jewish Holocaust in the 30s and early 40s, where concentration camps are real and genocide does exist. And I'm giving you time to elaborate on that right now, please. Yes. Since 2016, the Chinese government has set up, according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, some 1,200 or more concentration camps. Uh, According to the U.S. Department of Defense, back in May 2019, they stated that at least 1 million and more likely 3 million Uyghurs, Kazakhs and other Turkic peoples were locked up in concentration camps. Aside from the concentration camps, you have several million people that have been detained in prisons, in labor camps. And so we have a large portion of our population that are currently interned in either concentration camps, prisons or labor camps. By a large portion of the population, what kind of numbers are we talking about that are in prison right now? We estimate that there's perhaps at least five to six million people that are currently interned in the uh, concentration camps, prisons, and labor camps. Outside of the uh, concentration camps, the prisons, and the overall gulag system, you have millions of people that are being forced to engage in forced labor. The Chinese government is also sending hundreds of thousands of young Uyghur and other Turkic men and women into Chinese provinces for forced labor, and while they're also sending in tens of thousands of Han Chinese settlers, giving them lucrative incentives like free land, free housing, cash supplements, free healthcare, education, and all these other 
benefits to encourage them to colonize East Turkestan. And throwing over their heads the opportunity to be with the local women, correct? Let's talk about that. Of course. Yes, that's another thing that the Chinese government is doing is without women, you know, there there's no society. If you don't have women, you can't reproduce and you won't be able to develop your society. So the Chinese government recognizes and that's why in order to, you know, eradicate the future of our existence, they have forced tens of thousands of young Turkic women to marry Han Chinese men, while at the same time the Chinese government has sent 1,120,000 Chinese officials, usually males, to live in the homes of the Turkic peoples whose male household members, like the head of the household, have been sent to the prison and encouraging them to sleep with these women. Uh, there's been numerous videos, photos of this emerging on social media and other networks, and this is something the Chinese government has even put out ads posting, you know, to encourage Han Chinese men to settle in these Turkestan things. There's beautiful women there, too, that you can choose and marry whichever you want. So what you're saying is primarily the internment camps, prison camps, concentration camps, as you call it, are comprised mostly of men. Yes. And where are these men being forced to work right now while we have a global pandemic with the COVID-19, the Wuhan virus, the coronavirus? What's going on? The Australian Strategic Policy Institute released a report called Uyghurs for Sale in which they highlighted some 83 Chinese and foreign companies that were profiting off of the slave labor of Uyghurs and other Turkish peoples. The Chinese government is shipping out, forcibly transferring tens of thousands of young Uyghur and other Turkic men mostly men, but there are also women as well, to work in these factories like for um, Huawei, for Apple, producing products for Apple, for Huawei, producing products for BMW, Volkswagen, clothing apparel for like Nike, Skechers, Adidas, H&M, and Zara. If I'm taking a pause here, it's because I'm I'm shocked. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow if you're a caring American citizen like many of our audience is. And this is factual information that you're imparting today. Of course, yes. This is all information that was released by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And shortly after they released this, we've received many videos that showed the actual transfer of the Uyghur and other Turkic men and women. What do you know about the spread of the virus in China and has it remained in the factories? So as far as the spread of the virus, the Chinese government initially denied the existence of this virus or denied that it was very contagious. Then now they're trying to push back and say that, oh, no, it was fabricated and created by the U.S. And now they're trying to promote itself as trying to save the world from the virus, ultimately, that it created itself. However, the number of people that died as a result of this virus, uh, new intelligence reports just yesterday and today that I was reading that were leaked show that possibly several hundred thousands and maybe even millions of people have died. And this affects China's economy. This affects the factories. And so instead of trying to hire factory workers, China is supplementing them with free slave labor of Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples. And you don't see that stopping anytime soon? No, I, I don't think that's like I can continue to receive videos every day. There's fresh videos showing for the past three weeks, all I've been seeing, I've seen over 100 videos showing the transfer of Uyghur and other Turkic men and women into Chinese provinces. And I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I want to ask you how those videos are being collected, but I'm afraid that we probably shouldn't ask that question or even get an answer. Just know that those videos are getting out, correct? So there's an app called TikTok. TikTok is a Chinese app. And so Whoever, like the videos are being filmed on TikTok, but people 
to pass the sensor, they're putting weird music to, to just make it look like it's a music video to pass the sensor. I understand there is forced DNA collection happening right now. Why? So we're not officially sure why the Chinese government is collecting the DNA samples and voice prints or retina scans of Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples. All we know is that in 2018, Chinese state media reported that it collected the DNA samples of 36 million people in East Turkestan. Initially, we thought that it might be for organ harvesting because that is something very prevalent in East Turkestan and across the rest of China. Usually they harvest the organs of political prisoners. But with the uh, current coronavirus and the fact that this was something that was written in a Chinese government document, military strategy from 2017, they hinted the creation of genetic specific attacks against China's enemies. We fear that China might be engaging in or preparing to engage in uh, biological warfare against East Turkestan's people. What are your thoughts on how this coronavirus began and got spread out around the world during the Chinese New Year, let's say? So initially, from the numerous reports that I've read, it seems that this virus originated in a uh, government biowarfare lab in Wuhan, and something must have happened to where it spread out or leaked out. And initially, the Chinese government denied that such virus existed. Then they changed their story, saying that it's not contagious. They refused to set up quarantines, and they prevent journalists, doctors, and others that were trying to warn the world. They began to censor all of this, and ultimately, they let it spread to the population around Wuhan and other parts of China, and many people began to flee China to other parts of the world, and thus ultimately contaminating the entire world. The Chinese government then you know, after the entire world was dealing with this pandemic, the Chinese government fabricated this lie, saying that it was created by the U.S. Army or that U.S. soldiers brought this virus. And then more recently, now they're saying, oh, well, maybe that might have been a conspiracy theory, but we did our best. In fact, we're helping, you know, prevent the virus. We got it under control. We can help other countries. And they're selling faulty masks, faulty thermometers, faulty test kits to many countries across Europe, even into the United States. So I think it's something that might have been deliberately created by the Chinese government for whatever purposes, but it might have accidentally got out. It's really unclear. You use the words the Chinese government let it get out of Wuhan. Yes, because according to one of the reports that I read, initially the governor of Wuhan, he immediately notified Chinese president and the special working group that had been created back in 2003 following the SARS epidemic in China. And they just completely, you know, refused to acknowledge it and refused to take any preventative measures until it had actually affected the entire world. Which is sort of an evil genius takedown of the Western financial system and culture, is it not at this point? You're in Washington, D.C. I'm in California. What are your thoughts, sir? I think it is, because over the past year, the international community was beginning to become more tough on China. The United States was imposing tariffs on China, and China's economy was hurting really badly. So I think the Chinese government might have deliberately planned this to where instead of taking away the Western backlash against it, that way the West can't deal with China, that way the West will have their own problem, this virus to deal with and China will continue to, you know, grow and the Communist Party will continue to remain in power. And I understand it spread to Italy fairly easily where there's a large NATO base. Have you thought about these things? Yes. The fact that it spread is the fact that the Chinese government didn't close its borders, didn't prevent its population from going out. In fact, for a whole month, they completely denied that 
this virus even existed or that it was contagious. And I think that many people fled to other parts of the world and some might have intentionally spread it because I've seen other videos where you see Chinese people deliberately touching every little thing that they can get their hands on. Like they're at Walmart and they're touching every little computer. They're touching all of the tomatoes. They're touching all of these food items. And it's like, why are you doing this? You're almost saying that there might be Chinese communist spies here in the U.S. doing this damage. Yes, I think so. The FBI the past year, especially the past two years, has been really pushing back against Chinese espionage in the United States. They've arrested numerous Chinese agents and the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, they have a massive security and intelligence apparatus to where they can easily, you know, infiltrate almost every community across the world. I don't want to impinge or impugn, I should say, any of our Chinese friends that we love and cherish here in North America or around the world. They're many good people. We're just talking about the Chinese Communist Party, aren't we? Yeah. What would you ask our wide audience here in North America and globally to do to perhaps bring an end to this? So one of the first things that we can do is obviously spread awareness right to members of our Congress, members of our parliament, government officials, calling on them to impose sanctions against Chinese government officials, impose economic sanctions against China as a whole to pressure them into stopping these atrocities that it's doing. The international community must hold China accountable for the coronavirus that it has spread to the world because we're all paying a price. The Chinese Communist Party must be brought down and the United States and the Western world must recognize East Turkestan, Tibet and other territories like Hong Kong as occupied by the Chinese communists and support them in any way that they can to help gain their independence and freedom. How can our listeners find out more about you, whether it's your website or social media and how can they help? Listeners can visit our website, nationalawakening.org. They can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ET Awakening. We always accept volunteers. If there are students that want to intern, we always accept interns. And those people have financial ability to help. We always accept donations. Prime Minister, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Thank you for joining me today on this program and shining a light on the predicament there in East Turkestan. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Salih Huayar, political refugee and prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile, based in Washington, D.C. Again, we ask that you visit the website nationalawakening.org. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Thoughts, comments, criticisms, accolades, praise, admonishments, pats on the back, all welcomed. Email us at martinreports at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. There's a group of people worldwide that make up an era, and we are in an era. A quintessential example of one of those people in our era, especially with regard to New York City, is the iconic Curtis Sliwa. As much as anyone is New York, Curtis Sliwa is New York. He's the selfless individual that founded the Guardian Angels in February of 1979. The Guardian Angels were formed originally to protect citizens on the crime-ridden subways of New York City. Believe me, I'm from New York and a man of a certain age, and New York wasn't the cleanest or safest city in the world in the 60s and 70s. Far from it. Now, over 40 years later, the Guardian Angels and their Red Berets are a community presence 
and their safety patrols are spread across the U.S. and the globe. And Curtis is evidently back in the subways during the current pandemic. You can hear Curtis Sliwa on 77 WABC weekdays at noon in the greater New York metro area and streaming globally online as well. He's running for mayor of New York City in 2021, and I know he'll have my support even from here in California. Today, Curtis Sliwa joins us on the Ellis Martin Report as my guest. Curtis, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure to join you in these uh, coronavirus times, but hey, fear not. Let's trudge ahead. Let's not be paralyzed by fear. Well, we have no choice. You know, I had to lose my New York accent when I left New York back in the 70s to move out west to get a job in radio. I think it's going to come back during this interview. Well, remember, it'll do you well. All you hear all day long are from New Yorkers. It's Cuomo in midday. It's Trump at night. It, the Dr. Doom and Gloom, Fauci, a New Yorker. You just hear New Yorkers all day long now. Are we not running the country right now? Pretty much so. <laughs> so that New York attitude, you know, that Holly Weird always said, oh, you know, you got too much of a New York accent. Well, you could have fooled me with Cuomo, Fauci, and Trump. That's basically <laughs> what you get each and every day in terms of updates. But you can forget de Blasio. He's not a New Yorker. He's originally from Cambridge. From Massachusetts, really? Yeah. Born and raised in Cambridge, changed his name, his last name, he had a German name, decided to come to New York, knew that wouldn't do him well, although Trump is a German name, figured that one out, and took his mother's maiden name, de Blasio, and said, oh, it's an Italian, I'll be in like Flint. So what's motivating you to run against him next year, sir? Oh, look at the disaster of New York City before this coronavirus spread. Just, I call him Comrade Bill de Blasio, the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope. Here's a guy who at night has put in half a day's work. And when I was growing up, when you were growing up, it was always described the mayoralty of New York City as the second toughest job in America, second only to the president of the United States. And this guy starts his day later than most New Yorkers, goes to a gym to work out from Manhattan and takes his SUV with the police patrol all the way to Brooklyn Park Slope where he lives and has a home. And then all of a sudden he shows up at City Hall at about 12 noon, takes a nap to 1230, does the people's work, I think, which is a lot of whining, dining, and pocket lining of lobbyists, and then he's off by 8 o'clock at night. You barely see this guy. So in every election, it's always a reaction to what was. We elected Ronald Reagan because we wanted strength, because Jimmy Carter was perceived of as too weak. We elected Barack Obama because we wanted intellect, because Bush 43rd was considered to be, hey, a guy you'd have a beer with, but probably couldn't chew gum and think at the same time. So it's always a reaction to who was there before. Likewise, in New York City, and we really need to get down to the basics now. This coronavirus spread has devastated the city economically. We've already had enormous problems of releasing criminals into the street, not caring for the homeless in the emergency disturbed and these other elected officials who would like to take over the throne they have absolutely jack diddly squat no idea of what's happening in the streets in the suites yes they know how to operate in the suite but you can't buy street cred and that's really what is necessary in terms of becoming the next mayor of the city of new york and when you spell free where you spell street cred 
Now, I remember you riding the subways in New York City, keeping them safe because NYPD was understaffed at that time. Well, we can go into all the reasons why New York had major problems back then. I mean, my dad used to send me out into Times Square in the East Village just to toughen me up. (laughs) And then I I got this permanent evil eye that all New Yorkers seem to have to sort of keep people away from us. But you started out in the subways of New York City. You're back there, I understand. A man of your age, and you're just a year older than me. We are at risk for coronavirus. What's the deal, Curtis? No, look, I got shot with five hollow point bullets in 1992 on the orders of John Gotti Jr. to the Gambito crime family. I survived that. I've survived prostate cancer. I've survived ileitis, colitis, and chronic Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed with latent tuberculosis. So I know all about a disease that is very transferable if it's full-blown like coronavirus, and I fear not. So I'm out there every day with the guardian angels caring for those who are the forgotten. Forgotten in normal times, the homeless and the emotionally disturbed, and really forgotten now as they forage through garbage cans because there's no food in the garbage cans. They're battling the rats the four-legged rats for food. They're roaming around the subways. They're living in places like Penn Station, Grand Central, and the Port Authority bus terminal, which under normal times are these huge transit hubs. They've closed the bathroom. So where do you think they defecate and urinate? On the spot. And if you're fearful that there's one group in the population that might get coronavirus and it will spread like wildfire, they haven't even given a thought, the city and state authorities, to the homeless and emotionally disturbed. Because you think they're going to check in with a doctor? You think they're going to go to a hospital? Of course not. And then if they get the coronavirus because they're laying all over the subways, because they're touching items, because they're coming into contact with average everyday people, well, then it's going to spread through the rest of society. So it's pragmatic. It's common sense. If you don't take care of those who have been forgotten, it'll definitely come back to haunt all of us. So that's why we're out there in the front line taking care of people just like ourselves, some who are drug addicts, some who are alcoholics, some who are emotionally disturbed, some who are down on their luck, but all who need care, and they're not getting it from the daily broadcast that we hear of uh, Mayor de Blasio and Cuomo, who just seem to be like Chicken Little. You know, the sky is falling, and no thought for the destitute, the impoverished, and those who live in the subways. Is the sky falling? Is this worse than 9-11? Is there some hope? Are we seeing the apex? What are your thoughts on New York City and the U.S. right now, Curtis? Absolutely not. We've allowed people to frighten the bejeebers out of us, to turn us against our very own neighbors and friends and family members. Think of this. We have told Americans who always rally around the flag, always come together in times of need. After 9-11, we saw that, putting aside political differences, coming together for the good of the country. 2008, the crash. The very next day, people's 401ks became 201ks. People were unemployed. We've had Superstorm Sandy here throughout the rest of the country. They've had hurricanes, tornadoes. They've had earthquakes. They've had all kinds of normal dilemmas that paralyze their communities. And always Americans have risen to the occasion, rich, middle-class, poor, black or white, every shade in between, and come together. This is the first time officials are telling us stay away from one another. Don't check on your neighbor. Distance yourself six, seven feet. Do you mean to tell me if a little old lady who's 77 years old is sheltered into an apartment, 
and she has no family. And I'm trying to get her food. I got to knock on her door, move seven, eight feet away. She can barely hear me if I'm talking to the door. Now I got to be screaming at the top of my lungs. You can forget about that. We deliver the food to the elderly. We have face-to-face contact. We have conversations with them. And when we go into the belly of the beach, the underground, the subways of New York City to help the homeless and the emotionally disturbed, you're not going to see Curtis Lee we're wearing a mask or gloves because you think I'm going to listen to these doctors like Fauci? You know, when I was younger, my mom and dad always said, hey, always get a second opinion from a doctor. This Fauci guy who's the Grim Reaper, we need a second opinion, third opinion, fourth opinion. Just think of it. In most instances, they have been wrong. In late January, they told us there was no problem. Then all of a sudden, by February, they said, oh, you know, you don't have to wear masks, uh, gloves. If you wear gloves, that actually may create more of a problem. They keep flipping the script each and every time they talk. And now, after telling us not to bum rush the supermarkets and the big box stores and hoard, 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 toilet paper and everything else, now, yesterday, they tell us, don't go to the grocery stores, don't go to the pharmacy. They are out of their minds, and I'm not giving up my liberties and freedoms to any of these self-made little Hitlers and dictators who have been empowered through executive order because during an emergency, governors, mayors, county executives can act like the president of the United States. And I got to tell you, to me, it's frightening that we would give up so much liberty and freedoms to people who know as much as we do about this coronavirus. People that are living in gated communities, no doubt. Oh, not only gated communities, they have private security, they're not out there with the people, they don't feel their pain. They say, well, you know, we may have to sit on our tuchuses, we may have to be on the shelf till September. Yeah, and who's going to pay for the rent and the lease? And who's going to pay the mortgage payments? And, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll appeal to the federal government. The federal government's in debt. The federal government is, is, is printing money with the Federal Reserve, trillions of dollars more than we normally are when it comes to debt and deficit. Are we out of our minds? And for something that will hit us, and it's going to hit us hard, those who are most vulnerable, like somebody like myself, somebody like you, there's no doubt about it, but I hear all the governors screaming for ventilators. I've been on a ventilator when I was shot five times. When you're on a ventilator, it is life support. That means that you're going, going, gone. The likelihood is you're not going to recover from that in good times. And now that you might have 40 ventilators in one room, a nurse or a doctor overseeing it who've never been in an ICU before, do you really think you even want to go to a hospital at this point when, in fact, the moment you walk through the doors, it's like you're an inmate. You are a ward of the state. You can't get your phone calls answered. You don't know what happened to your loved ones or relatives. I'll tell you this much. I'd rather die in bed at home with my family caring for me, die while I'm standing, than buck bowed and bent down on my knees, so fearful and paralyzed by this virus, that I give up all my rights and liberties. And I'm l- overlooking a beach right now, which is entirely empty. It's never packed to where you you have to keep six feet away from anyone. It, has Central Park shut down? Have all the parks and recreational areas locked themselves up? What's it like in New York right now? Well, that's the problem. We have a governor and a mayor who won't even talk with one another in this emergency. They talk at one another. They contradict one another. So, for instance, when it comes to parks, you want people to be in the parks. You want them out there with fresh air. That's sure, right. you don't want 50, 100 people all together like sardines in a sardine can. 
But look, people, you got to trust people. Our politicians don't trust anybody. They feel like they got to be on nannies, our boobies, our zetas, from the cradle to the grave. Hey, we don't need that. Give us some advice. Give us some direction. Give us some guidance. And guess what? We can handle this. So they close the playgrounds, but they don't have school. So the kids are at home, and naturally they're bouncing off the walls. Mommy and Daddy, who barely got together enough to keep the marriage together, now are forced <laughs> to live with one another. Divorce rates are going up. Domestic abuse is going up. Liquor stores are open because that's considered an essential <laughs> business. Meantime, people are jitting up. They're drinking in six-packs, and all hell is breaking loose, at least in the part of the city I deal with. That may not be true of Park Avenue in Manhattan, but it is true in the outer boroughs. And let's face it, our elected officials are oblivious to it. Simple example, hydroxychloroquine. When I had colitis, I took hydroxychloroquine for six months. Didn't help me, but it didn't hurt me. Obviously, we know that people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, they've been taking it, and obviously it's an anti-malaria drug that's used extensively throughout the third world. It's had some initial results. So some of these governors, just despite Trump, have banned the use of hydroxychloroquine. Why are we doing that when we know doctors are admitting that not only are they taking it as a prophylactic, nurses, orderlies, others who have to go into the Petri dish, they're like kamikaze healthcare workers in this coronavirus spread. They're taking it as a prophylactic. They're giving it to their family and friends, but we're not going to give it to patients who initially show up to the ER showing major symptoms we're out of our minds it's twenty dollars for a treatment of hydroxychloroquine when they put you on a ventilator at least in new york it starts out that when you have a normal bed it's a thousand dollars a night the moment they turn that bed into an icu unit and how do they do that they just attach you to a ventilator it's ten thousand dollars a night so it, it's mind-boggling it makes no sense and we have to revert to basic common sense and pragmatic thought I'm going to ask you two questions at the same time. What do you want to see now happen in this country? What do you want to see happen in New York? And if you were mayor today, what would you change? What would you do? Let's forget about 2021. Let's talk about today. And I can see my New York accent has returned. Thank you, sir. I think what has to happen is everybody's got to get on the same page here. We have so much misdirection, misinformation. The Surgeon General two weeks ago says, oh, don't wear masks. Now all of a sudden they're saying wearing masks. Trump says, you know, it's not mandatory, so I'm not going to wear a mask. Then Biden says, well, I'm going to listen to the health care officials. I'm going to wear a mask. Good. Biden, you want to wear a mask? Nobody's listening to you anyway when you normally talk. Now you'll be muffled when you talk, and so we won't hear your many faux pas. Trump doesn't want to wear a mask. So be it. This is the right as Americans. You're going to mandate masks. You're going to mandate gloves. You're going to chain me to a radiator. And guess what they're doing in the interim? They're releasing criminals from jails. We're not talking shoplifters. We're talking murderers, rapists, people who are awaiting trial on serious charges because we're afraid they're going to get the coronavirus or spread it in the prison. Oh, and these socially irresponsible people that you're going to release into the streets, you think their mothers are going to accept them at home with their other kids? Of course not. So they're going to have to roam the streets or go to a shelter. And there are 60,000 New Yorkers already in a shelter in New York City. And guess what? They have a bunk three feet away from one another while they're coughing, hacking, sneezing. So, boom, there's the perfect Petri dish for the explosion of coronavirus. There's no common sense here. So as mayor, 
I would immediately say, stop. We got to give some hope. We got to make people see that there's a blue sky after these gray clouds. I have to stop the press conference and get out there. I let the subways run. And yet all of a sudden I say, I don't want people too close to one another. I want them to socially distance. Set an example. The mayor needs to be out there riding the subways. The mayor needs to be in the ICU units. The mayor needs to be in the hospitals. The mayor needs to show visibly that he is not afraid of the coronavirus. And that'll give people a lot of hope for what happens with de Blasio. He's in a press conference. You don't see him the rest of the day. What happens with Cuomo? He's become the sort of glamour boy of America. You don't see him for the rest of the day. They have to be out there with the real people. This way, people will be encouraged. They'll be reassured. They'll be comforted. That's what Rudy Giuliani did for America after 9-11, when we didn't know where Bush 43 was. We didn't know where Cheney was. We didn't know what was happening. We were wondering, where will the next terrorist attack occur? And then there was the anthrax attacks. And we weren't quite sure, is this the beginning of biological germ warfare that the terrorists are releasing against us? But when the elected officials are all on the same page and they're cool, calm and collected and they are not hitting the panic button, people, and that's the difference. I trust people. I don't trust politicians. I don't trust elected officials because ultimately they're only going to do what's in their best interest. I give people credit enough to have common sense that if you give them a little direction, you ask them to help and cooperate, they will do it. You know, it's a real pleasure to listen to you. It's very refreshing. And I've got to tell you, I think you'll have support from both sides of the aisle in a nonpartisan way when you run for mayor of New York City next year. You've got a lot of friends out there. Well, I got a lot of friends, but you know what politics has come down to? They say, oh, it's all about the money. You got to have big pockets. So you got to know people with big pockets. And I say to all my adversaries, no matter how ill-intentioned or well-intentioned they might be in running for the mayoralty, you focus on getting the big fat cat contributors to back you up. So you can put your propaganda out there on television and stream it about what a great guy or gal you are and how much help you've given to the community. I've got street cred. That's something that millions of dollars can't buy. People have grown up with me three, four generations. They've seen me in the subways. They've seen me in the places where politicians dared to tread, in the public housing projects, in the hood, in the crime-infested neighborhoods. They know that Curtis Lee, even if you disagree with him, is always going to be there. He's not a fagazi, as we say it. I'm not a fake, phony, fraudulent politician. I'm a guy who has already helped people. I know how to get people to help themselves, and that's going to be my goal. I'm going to come in and I'm going to say, oh, Public housing projects, NYCHA, you know the federal government subsidizes us 95% of the bills. I know you hate Trump. I know you hate Dr. Carson. But without them signing the checks, there is no public housing. So how about we put aside that visceral hate you have for these two men and understand you've got to cooperate with them or you won't get the money from Washington. And secondarily, how about looking at your living, your dwelling locations and say, what can I do to improve it? What can I do to stop the vandalism? What can I do to take the garbage out myself to prevent the infestation of rats? What can we as a community do to self-help? And that's the whole idea. You can't be dependent on government because anyone running for office, they promise you everything before they get elected to office and they get into office and realize they're a dollar short and a day late, especially now. We're going to be in fiscally tough times. 
And that brings us back to where it was in 1979 when I started the Guardian Angels. We were on the brink of fiscal dissolvement in New York City. We were on the brink of declaring Chapter 11. Thank God then President Gerald Ford, through the influence of Rumsfeld, who was his chief of staff, and Dick Cheney, who was his assistant, said, you can't bail out New York. It's the economic engine of the world. The reason that they're on the brink of going Chapter 11 is they're politicians of pigs. They've got their beak in the trough. They're siphoning off money. They're going to have to get their own house in order. And there was a big headline in the New York Daily News, Gerald Ford dropped dead New York. Well, guess what? Gerald Ford was right. It forced us to get our house in order. They had to make draconian cuts, teachers, social workers, firefighters, cops. Then there were no police in the subways at night. That's how I got creative, and I said, well, wait, we'll fill the void. We'll bring in the volunteers. We'll call it the Guardian Angels. We'll patrol. And people thought it was the Warriors, that cult classic movie that came out about gang roaming the subways that was a a big hit in the movies. It wasn't the Warriors. It wasn't the Hells Angels. People thought we were a gang, thought we were vigilantes. And we were in Charlie's Angels that many people pejoratively called us. And we showed how average, everyday, young, black, Hispanic, white, Asian, adult and teenagers could actually come together without weapons and protect people who could not protect themselves. And it didn't cost the taxpayers a penny. What message do you have right now for your brothers and sisters, your minions in the Guardian Angels worldwide? We're in 13 countries now, 130 cities, and many of those countries are in lockdown. And what we're doing is we're finding the seam in partnership with other groups. They may be able to develop the food, the medicine, the resources that some people are dependent on day to day. We can be the Fed Express. We can be the UPS. We can be the United States Postal. Oh, well, wait a second. I don't want to be that slow. That's like a turtle, the United States Postal Service. We're more like FedEx. We're more like UPS. And we can go where no one else will go, into the belly of the beast, into the impoverished neighborhoods. We can help the senior citizens who are left to their own. Imagine, just think of it. Our governor here and other governors have said in these long-term care units, in these senior citizen homes, you cannot visit your loved ones. You cannot even talk to them at times. How do you know what's going on behind those closed doors? Under normal circumstances, the elderly are being abused in the senior citizen homes or ignored or denied the basics and the long-term care and rehab units. So we're visiting them. It's almost like the Red Cross during wartime. Remember, you want to know how are the prisoners doing? So you're not going to let your enemy come to see the prisoners that are their military. So you send a Red Cross in just to do a wellness check. That's what we're doing. We're filling the void that exists out there because everyone else is being told to shelter in, chain yourself to a radiator, and just sit it out. Put yourself on the shelf. Yeah, you can inhale, you can exhale, but don't do anything else. And I'm telling all guardian angels worldwide, whether they're in third world countries or first world countries, the guardian angels fear not. If you're not willing to go out there into the belly of the beast, if you're not willing to help those who can't help themselves, then take your red beret and your T-shirt off and sit at home and watch your Netflix and your Hulu and watch Cuomo and Trump and Fauci all day long scare the achievers out of you. But guess what? We're not. We're going out there and doing what we always do in good times and bad times, and that is helping people help themselves. Curtis Lewa, it's been a real pleasure listening to you and having a conversation with you today. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for your time today. God bless. All right. And Americans, 
you know, you got to show a little hoots. Got to show strength. You can't fold like cheap cameras because our politicians, they want us to be dependent on them. I was born in this world because of my mother and father. I'm going to end up leaving this world ashes to ashes, dust to dust, like my parents did. And guess what? I'm going to do it proudly, not weakly, not meekly, not afraid, and depending on government every step of the way. One more final question. How do young people that I know are listening to this broadcast right now participate, join the Guardian Angels? Oh, it doesn't matter where you are. It probably is a Guardian Angel group nearby or that you can affiliate with. Even with your nonprofit or your volunteer organization, we can partner up. Just go to www.guardianangels.org. That's www.guardianangels.org. You'll see the panoply of different programs that we put out there for people in need. And it doesn't cost the taxpayers any dollars. Everyone's a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. Every other person, there are 5,000 members in 13 countries, 130 cities. And guess what? We dare to care. We believe in us and we, not I and me. And Curtis, I understand you can be heard every weekday on 77 WABC in New York City. 12 noon to 3. I'm on Monday through Fridays. And it's WABC. You can stream it. On the app, you can hear it in Kabul. You can hear it in Baghdad. And so it's the one show that understandably lets people know, forget the politicians. We know what we got to do to get through this because we've gotten through worse. And we're going to survive. And we're going to survive as proud, strong Americans not weak and feckless as we become, like sheep. (laughs) Tell me what I should do every day. (laughs) Enough of that. Curtis, if you need anybody here in California or even back in New York, I'm on your side, I'm on your team when you run for mayor next year. Thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks for the tactical air support. I've been speaking with the Guardian Angel radio talk show host and perhaps the future mayor of New York City, Curtis Sliwa. Listen to him on 77 WABC at 12 noon weekdays or streaming online and please if you can donate to the guardian angels so that they can continue to do the great volunteer work that they do simply go to guardianangels.org thanks for joining me i'm ellis martin subscribe to the ellis martin newsletter it's free go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com. Do it now. See you next time.